Well, it's a privilege to be with you. This is my first time being here on a Sunday. I was here for a conference once, an elders conference, um, a year or two ago, two years ago. Um, so I knew where it was, <laughs> but uh, this is a privilege. Thank you very much. By the way, my, uh, my career officially ended a year or so ago. I'm a high school math teacher by background, um, but I'd rather talk about the ministries of the Word of God that uh, we're involved in. Um, but uh, I was a high school math teacher for 30 years, and I uh, thank you. I know I don't look that old. I appreciate that, but you're a lovely audience, so thank you. For, um, but uh, um, it's a challenging place. It was in the public high school system, and it's, uh, it's getting tougher and tougher. And that's one of the reasons why this passage that we're looking at, and not the one that was read, that was the background. And thank you, brother, for reading all those verses. It's a lot of verses, but Acts 17, um, we're going to retrace a little bit with that. Um, but uh, we, have, we have, I would contest, and I'm going to leave that with you as a bit of a challenge, but I, I would, I would um, contend with you, actually, uh, that... Uh, Athens that we read about, that Paul was uh, addressing here in the later part of the passage we read in Acts 17 from verse 16 onward, um, is very similar to modern Canada. And I'll leave you to think about the similarities and differences that exist. But uh, we do live in a very bizarre culture right now that has lost its character completely from what it used to be. I think we all know that. And if you know anything about the history of this, this land, you'll know that what we now accept in our con- country right now is nothing similar to what we used to accept. Um, the, what is considered normal now, um, well, actually, there's no such thing as normal anymore. There's actually a famous singer, Bruce Coburn, who's had a song, The Trouble with Normal is It Always Gets Worse, right? And it, norm- what is normal anymore? Um, who knows? And I worked with students, high school students, and there are so many confused people. We've never had a generation as confused, and yet with so many abilities and so much access, and and, I'm not blaming them at all, because it's actually what the previous generations have set up that's created the problem. Um, But I'm not going to get into a whole study of social uh, dynamics and so on, but Let's take a look, for example, uh, well, Paul, just, just for a bit of background there, uh, we, we see that Paul's kind of driven out of town. <laughs> the, the chapter's kind of negative in that way, but it's exciting at the same time because Paul is coming into these, these communities and he's making clear statements about things that he has come to complete conviction about is true, about this person called Jesus. And what the Old Testament scriptures were teaching I notice his pattern, as I'm sure many of you are familiar, he, he would start off going to the synagogues among the Jews and deal with the fact that they had a background knowledge of God. They had a background knowledge of the scriptures from the Old Testament scriptures. And he would reason with them about the promise for the Messiah and then would proclaim the one that we were looking for, that's Jesus. That's the one that I now know. Right? And, and remember his background. Who's writing this? Right? Who's the person we're talking about? He himself is a testimony of, of the kind of resistance that he encountered. He was the guy who was leading the charge to go and hunt down, imprison, and kill Christians. 
right? This is an amazing thing that's happened. Something's different. Just like the transformation of the people in the jails that we're talking about in some of that. Paul had this radical transformation of, of his, his whole priority. What he thought was true and absolutely convinced. He was absolutely sure he was right. He was not conscious of a delusion at all. He was convinced he was right about it. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, he's aware by meeting the resurrected Christ that he, that he had be, been missing out. And he was wrong about Jesus, that he really is the Messiah, that he really is alive. And, and uh, he had completely um, uh, impossible to deny proof that, uh, that, that it was true. And so his life was completely turned around by that, and he wanted everybody else to know the same thing, especially his fellow Jews. You're studying Romans, I saw in the announcements, or you will be. Um, And uh, Paul's heart for the Jews comes out in that letter so powerfully. He longs for his people. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are are hard chapters to read, Uh, but he longs for them to, to get right. And so his first priority was always to go back to the synagogue if he could. When he arrived in a town, that's where he'd go first in almost every case, if it was possible. And if he didn't find an actual synagogue, like in chapter 16, where he went down to an area where they thought there might be some Jewish people praying, right, because there wasn't yet a synagogue, he would go there first if he could, because there was a foundation there, there was a knowledge there. And he did the same thing when he got to Athens. He's been driven out of Thessalonica, he's been driven out of Berea, um, and, uh, and here he is now in, in a very major city, Athens, and still is uh, to this day. I've never been there myself. Has anybody been to Athens before? Yeah? You can probably fill us all in, but, uh, but I, I, I have a friend who gave me pictures of this because he knows I love this story, and he gave me pictures of it, and uh, this, uh, what is either called Mars Hill in your Bible, or the Areopagus, right, and it's phenomenal, you can probably affirm this, but uh, the marketplace that he had talked about here in, uh, in verse 17, um, that, uh, and 18 and so on, is down lower in the city, and then there's this very high area where these philosophers and leaders would get together up there. And you look down, you could actually see quite a distance down to where everybody else is. It's, it's, there's a visual sense there of being superior and of being removed and elevated and kind of in a set-apart kind of mindset. Um, and so, you know, if you're, if you're the, uh, the scholars and the philosophers you're gonna, and you hang out up there, you know, you're, you're above everybody and you've got it all figured out. Do we know any people like that in our culture? <laughs> right, who are just, they'll mock you to just put you down, right? I had that happen at school. I made one statement that was not at all negative, um, but was taken as a negative thing. It was to raise a question about a practice that was going on in our, in our board of education, um, and, and I was the union rep for our school, so I kind of had a, a role to play in that, and I got attacked by some of the teachers very publicly, and very maliciously uh, for even questioning anything that might be popular in our culture right now. And I was not even really doing that. I was asking for clarification. I'm not going to go into the details, but it had to do with the whole issues of, of the uh, pride flag and so on. Um, and in, I was not speaking against that. I was, and that's not my point to comment on that. I was asking about the protocol. How do we decide what we're doing and when a flag is going to be changed and so on? I'd like to know 
because we, I was representing international students because I was an ESL teacher. So I was teaching all these students with all kinds of histories and all kinds of issues, and they had legitimate questions. They're saying, why does Canada do what it does? <laughs> well, I'm asking. I didn't know why we did what we did either <laughs> for these things. So I raised the question, oh, I got attacked big time. Oh, wow, did they ever slam me? Um, and I hadn't said anything wrong. I had simply asked a question in a culture that refuses to think. And in a culture that refuses to talk about truth, but imposes everything on you and says, you must agree with everybody and our norm, or else we're going to mock you and drive you out. That's what happened to Paul, right? Nothing new. This is exactly what's going on. Notice the mobs. Have you noticed in the States, for example? It's not about truth. It's about ideas, right? You don't have to prove anything anymore. You just have to have a big enough mob that's going to scream and yell loud enough, and you're going to mock everybody else so that they feel intimidated and don't speak up. It's not about truth. It wasn't about truth in his day either. It was about jealousy. He was driven out by the Jewish leaders because they were jealous of his popularity. He was getting followers. And so we live in a culture like that where where we're, we're foreigners to them when we start talking about what we believe about the scriptures. We don't fit in. So what did Paul do about that? The title that I gave was that this chapter is a model for today's ambassadors. What is an ambassador? Right? We, we're familiar with that idea. But I would like to encourage this. It's only really used a couple of times in the New Testament to describe Christians. Um, Paul uses it specifically of himself in Ephesians chapter 6 where he calls himself an ambassador in chains. And then he says in 2 Corinthians 5, he speaks of, of Christians in general, him in particular, of being ambassadors, calling out to people to be reconciled to God. I like to think of the local church as being an embassy and that where we have an opportunity for people who have a common citizenship that is not from here to be together and to be strengthened, to be equipped and get back out there. Um, in, I don't, won't turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 1, it's a beautiful passage that talks about the power of Christ. I, actually, I won't get you to turn there, but I'm going to read it. So um, Ephesians chapter 1, it says this, um, and what is the surpassing, talking about Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, is what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So how supreme is Christ? Right? Absolutely supreme, right? King of kings and Lord of lords. Right, he's far above all rule and authority and power, including Canada, right? including the U.S., including the U.N., anything. Right? He's far above everything, any time period, any empire, everything that's ever happened, including the angels, including Satan. He's high above, far above all of these. Right? And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave, gave him as head over all things to the church, uh, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So here we have that picture of Christ raised and, and, and ascended, and he is seated at um, the right hand, and he is authoritative far above. But what does it say in chapter 2? In verse 6 it says, and speaking of us, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice the tense. Raised, past tense. It's done. 
If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as I am, you are raised up and seated with him. In other words, you might be sitting here in Mississauga in a chair, but your actual place right now, not in the future, you'll see it in the future, but your place right now is with Christ. You have a seat there that's yours. You just haven't occupied it yet. It's yours already. You're here on a mission. I'm here on a mission. He hasn't taken us to be there yet. We're expected to be his ambassadors here. That's why Christ said, as a resurrected Christ, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, but that's not how he started the statement. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, right, and so on, right? And so um, Paul comes along, and he's got that, that posture that says, I am an ambassador, and so he shows up in Athens, and he recognizes that he's in foreign territory. Now, Paul is a highly educated person. He used to be of that world, right? But he now sees his identity as a citizen of heaven and as on mission with God, and he is there to represent Christ. That's why he got uh, accused in Thessalonica. What, what did they say about him? He's, he, they're essentially saying he's treasonous. Why? Because he's proclaiming another king other than Caesar. He's talking about King Jesus. Now that sounds an awful lot like what they accused our Savior of, right? That he's claiming to be king and this is not right because Caesar's the only king and so on, right? So he's just representing the same king. And that's what an ambassador does, right? An ambassador lives in a foreign country to where their citizenship is and represents that government and has is supposed to be an accurate represent, representation of that government. Integrity, character. Our brother was talking about in his prayer about we need to be the image of, of the Lord, right? That's exactly what an ambassador should be. A good ambassador is an accurate representation of the laws and character and principles and culture and customs and so on of the government they come from. In our case, it's King Jesus. So, are we an accurate representation? Well, Paul was. He had his absolute passion. We, we were singing a bit about it, right? To count everything else as loss. I was reading before we started the first meeting in one of your songs, right? Uh, Paul's thoughts from Philippians 3 about to know the Lord, knowing you, Jesus. That's all I want to know, right? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings becoming conformable to his death so that I might be Conformable to the resurrection, too. Um, Paul had that passion. Now, I want to take a look at this, uh, the next part of the chapter, um, to, to look at the speech he was allowed to give. And uh, they invited him to come. And I'd like to see how that teaches us in our day how to handle the realities of, uh, of being an ambassador in a culture that is very secular, that has no knowledge of God. And... Canada's never been a Christian nation, by the way. I hope you don't think Canada was ever a Christian nation. It was Christianized. It had Anglican and Catholic backgrounds, mostly, and whatever native religion was, was available as well. It was not, in and of itself, um, a Bible-teaching history in this country. Now, the U.S. is very different. It was started by people who had a real uh, love for the Bible, different you know, doctrines that might exist with different people, 
George Washington and we wouldn't necessarily agree on a lot of things. Um, but, uh, but the Bible was the source that they would refer to, right? That's never been true of Canadian religion. Um, that was not historically true. I was raised in that background. Um, um, and uh, it's not what you turn to. You don't look for these things. Families don't necessarily speak about the Lord, things like that. Um, we might pray around meals, but that, Canada's never been a Christian nation, but we have had Christian influence on the nation, and it has affected, of course, the laws that we have adopted are all consistent in, in, with the mindset of the Judeo-Christian background. Um, but we have left out, like, it is so unpopular to, to, to be like that. And the Epicureans and the Stoics were referred to here. Um, and I don't know a ton about them, but I, I understand that the Epicureans were kind of agnostics, right? They didn't necessarily know what to believe. They, they didn't necessarily accept there was a God, but they weren't necessarily prepared to say there they're, uh, is isn't a God like the atheists, which is really lying to oneself because there's plenty of evidence that there is one. Um, but nonetheless, people can use their free will to go in against God if they want. But that's, um, they were existential, so they looked at life experiences as being sort of the key thing to, to measure life by. That's pretty true about our culture, right? There's a lot of people like that. We're, meanwhile, the Stoics were more humanistic and more about the human power, human value, human strength. We have a lot of that going on. Um, you can do it. You can Anything you dream, you can accomplish, which is a lie. Um, you know, I, I can dream, I can fly, but I'll never do it unless I use a plane or go with my son-in-law who's a pilot, you know, and... Uh, I'm not going to ever fly, but I can, you know, I can dream it, but I'll wake up <laughs> hurting myself <laughs> trying to go off the roof. Um, but, uh, they thought, but that human power and so on, they were legalistic as well. A lot of rules, conformity, discipline, that kind of stuff. There's, measure, there's some of that that's valuable, but some of it that is entirely uh, all about human glory. And uh, anyway, Paul, there he is, is invited to come. He's been talking about Jesus. He's been talking about the resurrection. Um, and uh, so that's one of the reasons why in the speech that he gives, he doesn't actually name the Lord Jesus in the one that comes in a few moments uh, because they already knew that name. They'd already heard it. So just to qualify and clarify that, uh, that the reason he doesn't specifically name Jesus is because they already had him invited on the basis of having proclaimed this name and proclaimed his resurrection. Um, so I'd like to look at two main things that come out of this. One is his, his posture and tone, a little bit of time spent on that, but mostly I'd just like to look at, just briefly at the highlights of what he hit. Um, we're here for, what, another hour or so? <laughs> um, so verse 22 says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So we can learn something there of Paul's posture. Um, he, notice how he compliments them. He starts off with trying to find common ground, trying to find ways to open the conversation, not to shut it down. Uh, we could learn a lot of lessons on that. There are a lot of Christians who shut down a conversation pretty fast when they're trying to be evangelistic. Right? Let's try to let, you, you do far better trying to win them over when you, when you compliment them um, and, and find ways to, to see that there's something that they are maybe looking for that they, and you, you compliment from the fact that they're maybe looking for it. Um, so, you know, somebody who believes that there's, you know, a lot of self-discipline is important, God agrees with that. But not for human glory, 
but because we should be living ordered lives that are good stewards of our bodies and our lives and so on. We can compliment people that way, but we don't let them think that that's all there is to it. Because Paul said, he said, you know, there's a God you don't know that I do know, and I'd like to tell you about him. And that's why he was asked to speak. And they gave him a moment to speak. He had no idea necessarily, unless they told him somewhere we don't have recorded, how long he'd have. But what he says in the next few verses can be said in less than two minutes. Now, he may have taken a little longer. We don't know. But that's all he said. And he said this. The God who made the world, and notice I'm going to try to quote it for you, and I'd encourage you to learn it from memory. My memory's not so great anymore. But this is one I think is important for us. The God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. For he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, you might have a different version that you're watching on the screen, I guess. But that was the end. At that point, it said, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others, uh, um, but others said, We shall hear, uh, hear you again on, concerning this. So the conversation was over. His time was done. They'd had enough. Some of them, that we've given you a moment. You've said all that we want to hear right now. Others are saying, we want to hear more. You're going to divide the crowd. And Christ did that all the time, constantly separating people. And so which side are you on? And that happened to Paul all the time too. And it will happen to us. We're not going to convince everybody. But Paul had that posture. Notice his tone in all of this. He was absolutely clear about where he stood. He knew who he represented. I know whom I have believed, he would say elsewhere. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed unto him and entrusted to him until that day. He knew what he believed. He knew who he believed. He knew who he represented. And and he he had that tone of respect for his listeners. We're called to do that, right? 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we're supposed to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, Right? to anybody who's uh, who's asking the questions, right? But it says to do so with gentleness and respect. We're not supposed to go out there being antagonistic. We're supposed to be invitational. Notice he wanted them to to come to it. Now, at the end of his message, he was warning them about the judgment to come, but he didn't start off that way. He started off invitationally. He said, I'd like you to know something that you're missing out on. Well, most people will tolerate that for a while. And notice he, he's proclaiming. He's not reasoning. He did reason in other places, in the marketplace and so on he did. But this time he's proclaiming. We can all do that. If you're a Christian, you might not feel comfortable explaining things. You might not feel comfortable reasoning things. But you can proclaim. 
You can be like the blind man in John 10 who said, I don't know who he really is, but I know this. Once I was blind, but now I see. You know, you can say what you know. You might not know a lot about the Lord Jesus. But notice that he tells us the kinds of things, and we don't have time to study this in detail, but I encourage you to do that yourself. But notice, like in verses 24 and 25, he focuses on the person of God. Who is he? So one of the things that's important here is that Paul, Paul's speech is, is designed to reach a people that don't know God. And he wants them to understand that God can be known, he wants to be known, and he should be known. Right? Those are important things. We need to have that posture with people too in our country. Is that there is a God? You don't have to prove it to them. You proclaim it to them. An ambassador does not necessarily alter any of the politics of the country in which they live. They just represent the country they're from. And maybe that will change somebody. Maybe it won't. But the ambassador's role is to represent their country, their king, their government regardless of what the foreign country they're living in does with it. And they may drive you out. But the point is, our role is not to change them. Our role is to proclaim it. And maybe some of them would like to have relationship with our king. That's maybe what's going to happen. And in our case, we can change citizenships. People can become a citizen of heaven while they're still living in the country like we are. Right? We might have Canadian citizenship, but that's not our real citizenship. The real citizenship is in heaven. We have a privilege of citizenship in one country or maybe in India or maybe in the United States or maybe somewhere else. It doesn't matter. But our real citizenship as Christians is, is in heaven. So he looks in the verses that we look at here, he highlights who God is so that they may know him. But notice it's unapologetic. It's he's the Lord. He's the creator of heaven and earth. Right? We see that in verses 24 and 25. He's the self-sufficient one. He doesn't need anything. You know, the, the gods they believed in uh, were, had portions of the creation that they were responsible for, right? They, they believed that there was a god of the sea and a god of the air and a god of this and that. And they theoretically had a god who was in charge of everything, right? Zeus. But he wasn't the same as our god. Because Zeus could argue with the other gods, right? That we have one god. We only believe in one god. And he is over everything. Um, and so he proclaims him like that. And he's not appeased by sacrifices. Religion will accomplish nothing. They must have been a bit bothered by that statement because we have a pride as humans to do religious things. We want to try and earn our way. Every religion of the world, except Christianity, teaches that. That you have to actually do something to achieve spiritual levels or acceptance by your deity or whatever it is, regardless of how many gods you believe in. Our, our Muslim neighbors... <laughs> think that it's all going to be weighed out in the end. And yet the Bible's very clear that that's not how God does it. Right? In Ezekiel, you can go find that he says, if somebody's been committing wickedness, but then they turn and practice righteousness, all their wickedness will be forgotten. But it says, but if somebody was practicing righteousness and decides that's not for them and they want wickedness, all his righteousness will be forgotten. That's not a scale. <laughs> it's where your heart is. What does God say your heart is? That's what he's looking for. And, and uh, so this is a God who can't be fooled by religious effort. He's not served by that. He gave it all in the first place. This is the kind of thing he's telling us. He also tells us then he goes on to say he's sovereign. He was in charge. He, he, put, uh, he raises up and brings down all the governments of the world. We were hearing from Daniel 9 earlier 
uh, today. Um, I love that, that whole book, and it's so much of that is in there, right? If God is sovereign over all that, we may think humans are in charge and in our pride, and we may think that's true in our life, too, as individuals. God is the one in charge. You ever thought about the geography? Like, why, are the, why does God allow so many differences to exist on the earth about the geography and uh, living conditions? So, I mean, we got it pretty cushy here in this, this location. This, this period of history in this part of the world is very abnormal compared to most of the world today and certainly through history, right? The comfort levels that are possible here. The most troubled person in this land is way better off in, than, in most cases than, than what's normal in many countries of the world right now as far as what's available to them if they want it, right? Um, that doesn't, I don't want to oversimplify it, but um, what this tells us here is that God allows this. He set it all up so that people would seek him. The people would not be content with the world as it is. And they would ask questions and they would say, um, and it says that in, in, um, in verse uh, 27, it says that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Right? God wants to be known. He wants us to be um, looking for him. In, e- in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says he's put eternity in the hearts of men. And it, and it goes on to talk about the fact that, that people will never truly figure out how God works. And that's a good thing, because God is immeasurably great. Humans can't package God. And that's important for us to just be confident that that's the king we represent, is the unpackageable God, right? This is a God who wants to be known, who can be known, but is unknowable at the same time because he's so infinitely great, right? We need to have that sense, unlike any gods of the world. But he is in charge, and he allows people to suffer sometimes, and and that's a tough topic to get into, which I'm only going to just mentioned as an aside that 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 is God allows some of that because where is our desire he wants humans to decide do you like what you're dealing with is this where you're putting your hope what do you want do you think there's something more than this that maybe you should seek after right what do humans want and God allows various situations to happen in your life and mine and around the world to wake us up to the reality of that life was meant for more than this and even our joys can disappear quickly, right? And so where do we find lasting joy? You might have good experiences. You might have a good life. And yet you know perfectly well that there's probably more than that. We also have big questions. Where did we come from? Where are we going? What's the purpose? How do I decide right and wrong? All these things. And, and if people don't ask those questions with an honest attempt to go for answers, they're living in a bit of denial, right? That, that, that there's, there's people are, all over the world are asking questions like that. There's got to be something going on. And if we're honest, we're going to keep searching. And God wants us to search. And, and so that's the kind of God that Paul was proclaiming. He is absolutely supreme, but he does want to know every one of us, and he can be known. Matter of fact, uh, I'll just quote this as we sort of try to bring a few closing points in the next hour. <clears throat> um, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, is also worth memorizing. Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2 um, and it says, and uh, the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a place you could build for me, a house you could build for me? Where's the place that I may rest? For my hands made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, says the Lord. Right, like he's, how supreme. Can you picture that? Like the earth, this massive globe that we are all kind of in awe about, is his footstool. 
<laughs> he sits on his throne. I mean, it's the imagery. It's not really what's going on. He puts his feet up on the earth. <laughs> and he sits back and governs like that, right? And we're trying to protect the planet. I mean, we should. It's good stewards of the planet. But it's his footstool, <laughs> right? How important is a footstool? <laughs> but then he goes on to say, but to this one, I will look. I'm the supreme being who, you're just a, a tiny speck on this footstool. That's all you are. You can't even find Mississauga. As big as it is, I mean, I'm from Cambridge. You guys are big, right? That, you can't find Mississauga on the, on the planet as soon as you're just a little bit above, you know, the planet. And it's his footstool. And he says, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. In other words, this supreme God has full respect and interest in every individual who cares to have a relationship with him in an honest, accurate way, right? Where it's not on our terms, it's on his terms, where we understand his greatness and we're in awe of that greatness. And when we open up our Bibles, we actually recognize this is God's word and we tremble at it. And when God says something to us, we take it as his word. We don't always understand it, we don't always like it, but we respect him, we love him because he loves us, and all these things that Christ proves by his character. But Paul wraps up with this, and I'm going to do so too. Um, in, in Acts 17, um, he talks about all this fact that humans have got these distorted ideas and think they can even make idols and stuff like that, which doesn't make sense. He uses logic as well to speak to his audience. He says, you know, think about it. If he made humans... Clearly, he's not stone or gold or any of these things himself, because we're not. So the creator's going to be greater than us, so he's got to be greater than the objects of this creation, right? So, you know, stop and think about it, people. He's got to be bigger than anything you use as your religion. And then he goes on to say this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, you can look up in Scripture multiple times, God is very patient and he waits, right? Not willing that any should perish, but for all come to repentance. He says, Having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. You've got to turn around. You've got to have a whole change of thought. You've got to have a whole way of seeing things differently. Uh, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There's one man who absolutely pleases God, and that's God himself in the flesh named Jesus Christ. That's who he'd been proclaiming. And that man has been raised from the dead. Do we apologize for that? May I suggest as well, we should also check the tracks or whatever. I haven't seen what you've got here, but check it out. How much of the resurrection is ever mentioned in most of the preaching we ever do? We talk a lot about the cross and absolutely love that, but that's not ever the emphasis in the gospels, the gospel messages preached in the, by the Christians here. That's not where they leave it. The resurrection is mentioned almost every single time. We have a, a message quoted for us in the Bible, in the book of Acts in particular. The cross is necessary to pay, but, let's, but we're talking about the authority of the Lord over the people who are his judge. No, he's the judge. And people need to learn to take a humble position. And so Paul speaks as an ambassador, and that's our example. He has that posture and tone of confidence, but not arrogance. He is authoritative without being um, mean and harsh, right? And he's saying, I want you to know something you don't know. And I want to tell you about my king. 
My king is your creator. He's sovereign over everything. He holds everything together. He has absolute control over all the governments of this world. He's greater than any god you can ever imagine, and he wants, to know, he wants you to know him. He wants to have a relationship with you personally, and he wants that to be dealt with. He said, but he, Paul went on to say, but don't fool yourself into thinking that you can be his judge because he is the judge. He's the only human who's ever qualified to be acceptable to God. Jesus Christ. He is the only one. And it's as the perfect human, and I'll leave it to you to read John chapter 5, when Christ himself tells his listeners, all judgment has been given to the Son. Because he's not just the Son of God, he's the Son of Man. He is the perfect human. And that's Christ talking about himself. It's not arrogant, it's truth right? He is speaking. He's saying, you will see the day when I will raise everybody from the dead. When I speak, not a single person is going to stay in the grave. There's two judgments, though. There's ones who are going to be raised to life and one who's going to be raised to judgment for condemnation. He said, I'm the judge who's going to decide all of that. Now, what kind of posture is that? Brothers and sisters, we're cowards. I am. I'm way too passive. And I'd like to challenge us to get serious about our culture today. They're arrogant, arrogant, proud people as a philosophy. But there's tons of broken people within all that who have no idea what to really believe. They're going along with the masses only because they have no confidence in anything. We offer the only truth We didn't come up with it. Somebody shared it with me. I got saved at age 17 because somebody was courageous enough to actually share. And I was so delighted when, uh, Gio, was it, who who shared from Jonah. That was what was being preached on the the week I got saved at at a camp, right? And I love that, you know, God reaching out to us. But anyway, um, the point being this, I got to, I'm over time, definitely over time, got to wrap up, that uh, let's not be on the defensive, Ambassadors are never on the defensive. Ambassadors know who they are and know who they represent and know what their mission is and they just get on with that. They're not dragged into all the other affairs, at least not the good ones, right? They just stick with what they're here for. And their personal priority is to be very, very accurate reflection of what and who they represent. So our challenge is not to fit in with this world. We're to work with them. We're to be polite. We're to negotiate. We're supposed to have reasoning abilities and so on. But our primary thing is to become more and more like Christ so that there's no doubt that when we speak, there's integrity. And they're willing to listen to us because we seem to have credibility. They may not agree with us, but they know we believe what we believe. There shouldn't be any doubt. If you say you're a Christian and you're not confident of that, get confident in it. Get together with other believers. Pray. Do you really know the truth for yourself? Or are you only quoting other people? Do you know the words of your king for yourself? So that when you're put on the spot in the trial and no other Christians around to help you, you know the Lord. And you can actually speak for him authoritatively. But with the grace that he had and the confidence he had at the same time. Paul declared the truth to them, and left it with them to decide. Some accepted, some did not. 
Our job is not to convert people. Our job is to represent Christ and let the Spirit of God have the access to their heart. And the more we represent Christ properly by our character and our words, the more people will see this, this sounds true. And I didn't know it. Maybe I should look into this. Or others would say, this is too good to be true. I'm going to believe my lies <laughs> instead. It's not our business to convert them. It is our business to represent Jesus accurately. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. There's so much we could say and uh, what you've done to, to offer us hope is amazing. Lord Jesus, you paid that immense, immeasurable price to redeem people to yourself, to reconcile people with God, to make sure that we have that hope, that if we honestly come before you in repentance, you will forgive us. You've promised to do it. We don't have to beg you. You're not willing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. You want all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And now you've given us the commission to get out there and do it. Thank you for this time in this embassy here this morning where we could be reminded of your authority, your person, your character, and your commission. Lord, change us, we pray, to become more enamored with you, more passionate for you, and more in love with the, with the people of the world, not their system, but their need. Help us to love them enough to speak to them and to offer you to them because that's the commission you've given us until you take us home to our citizenship and our place, that seat with you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for that hope we have, and until then, strengthen us, equip us, and correct us as needed for your glory. Amen. Thank you for your patience.